Well, for five weeks now, we have um, been spending our time looking at the David and Goliath story. And I have essentially suggested that this story has huge potential impact for our lives. Um, evil has come as, by represent, as represented in Goliath, the giant, to take ground from God's people, and that can happen in our lives. You know, evil comes to overpower and defeat and destroy lives. Strongholds of evil can be established within us as we believe the devil's lies versus God's truth. And that can be so destructive for us. But the story goes on, and, and it is that we can exercise the power of the living God in our lives and through our lives. We can put on, on the armor of God on a daily basis. And we, like David, can defeat the power of evil through the power of Christ dwelling within us. And, act, and being activated by our, uh, by our lives. So we've looked at David, and essentially we've said, you know what, we can be like him. And I honestly hope and pray that during these weeks, uh, you have experienced God differently. I hope you have. I hope, like David, you know, you have come to recognize the enemy in your life, but you have found the power of Christ rising up in you as you have given yourself to what I've just described, putting on the full armor of God on a daily basis, prayer, all these various things, so much so that the enemy is being defeated. And even in some ways, I hope and I pray that in your life, Goliath lies flat on his face in the dust. I hope this has changed your life. We're going to carry on today. We're going to finish this series today. But I'm going to shock you a little bit. If not shock, at least surprise you somewhat. I'm hoping. I'm hoping. And I want to suggest to, to you this, that this story is first and foremost not about David, you know, even though he was a, is a tremendous example to us. And it's not even about us and how we can overcome evil in our lives and find victory in Christ. It's not about David. It's not about us. The reality is that this story is first and foremost about the person of Jesus Christ. And I want to take this morning to explain that to you. For David is what's called a messianic figure. He is a representation of Jesus. Living hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, through this story, through his example, through what we read in the scripture of 1 Samuel 17, we get to see what Jesus would become. We get to see what Jesus would do. Now this is different. But I want you to stick with me. Here's the, here's the lay of the land. You see, the, the, the actual telling of the story, I would suggest to you, in its first expression, is how evil has come into God's land, the world. The whole world. That evil has brought lies and harm and destruction. Start at Genesis chapter 3 and move forward and you'll see it. To all that God has made. The devil took the ground. He took all of it. But that in the coming of Jesus Christ and in his death and in his resurrection, God came to this rebellious, sin-filled world to take it back for himself. And the story of David and Goliath is simply a story of what Jesus would do when he came to destroy evil and drive it out from everything we know. So what do you think? I think for a lot of people, that's a bit of a mind-bending thing to contemplate. Because for a lot of people, like myself, if you've grown up from being a wee boy, being told about the David and Goliath story, it's about David and how we can be like David. But I'm standing here today to tell you that the story is primarily about Christ, not David. 
And it's a story about what God is doing in this world. Let me draw out the parallels for you between Christ and David himself. Both were from Bethlehem. Interesting. Significant, I'd say. Both are, in a surprising and in a humble way, rising from among God's people. Um, both descendants of Jesse. Both are described and were described as shepherds, and of course, in their own way, both were. Both had family who came to them and tried to dissuade them from doing what God was calling them to do. Do you remember in the story when David arrived at the front lines, his three brothers were there, and the oldest brother, who should have been anointed as king but wasn't and probably still mad at his youngest brother, mocked David and said, oh, you're only here to see, the, see his being defeated and so forth, and tries to send him home. David refuses to, in, to do what his brother has told him. There was a time in the life of Jesus when his mother and brothers came to him and tried to take him away because they literally thought he was crazy. <laughs> He's lost his mind. In each instance, family trying to, to keep these people from doing what God had called them to do. Both found themselves in highly militarized environments. You know, for, for David, it was the Philistines. For Jesus, it was the Romans. And both these militarized powers are intimidating. Both David and Jesus refused to do nothing when both could have done nothing. Both were compelled to act for the glory of, of God. Both came in weakness. David, just as a boy, he's called in the text, an untrained uh, fighter who refused the king's armor. Well, Jesus came as a weak rabbi and died a humbling death of weakness. Both were anointed for their task. David, in, 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 in chapter 16, we studied that together when uh, Samuel anointed him with oil and Jesus. Well, let me read to you from Luke 4, 18 and 19 where Jesus describes how he has been anointed to do the work that God has given him to do. Jesus speaking, referencing a prophecy of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, that the time of the Lord's favor has come. You see, Jesus was anointed as the Messiah to come, and he was empowered. Both were empowered to do what they were called to do, Jesus specifically to preach and to free people from the power of sin and to heal. Both were passionate to see God's will done. David ran toward the battle line. Remember that part of the text? Eager to see God's will done. Jesus, it says in the Gospels, and I love the phrase, he set his face toward Jerusalem. He, in great determination, set himself toward the cross and he would not be take, taken from it. Both Jesus and David put their lives on the line for God's purposes. Both faced the enemy directly, David in dialogue with Goliath, you know, remember the, his words to Goliath? Jesus, when he came and, and, and entered enemy territory, if you would, faced the devil down in his temptation, and then ultimately, of course, in his death. Both had those on their, their side, their, their supporters, their countrymen, who ran away in fear. You know, David arrived, and the armies of Israel are terrified. It says that for 40 days, Goliath came out, and he mocked the armies of God, and they ran away in fright. Jesus, when it came to the hour of his temptation, we say, the time when he was just about to be crucified, his disciples, when he was arrested and, and so forth, they ran away afraid to stand with Jesus. Um, both died 
for the promise of great blessing. Sorry, both did what they did for the promise of great blessing. David, so that he could get the hand of the king in marriage, that would be an incredible benefit to him for the rest of his life. Also because he could live a tax-free life. Who wouldn't want that, right? Who wouldn't want that? But Jesus, the Bible says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. He had purpose. He had reward waiting. Both defeated evil in the end. Both produced, instead of slavery and bondage, both produced freedom and victory in life for God's people. Both did what they did so that the whole world would know that the God of heaven existed and that we could trust him. It's a remarkable statement David made. He said to Goliath that, you know, I will, I will kill you and the whole world will know <laughs> that there is a God in Israel. How could he make such a statement? What was he saying? Well, you know what? Jesus came so that the whole world will know that there is a God in heaven who loves us. Both, my friends, left a force of people behind them to finish the task, to defeat evil and to wipe it out completely. After the Philistine Goliath was killed, uh, the, 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 armies, uh, the army of the Philistine ran away and the armies of Israel chased after them to finish the job. I want to tell you, not only did the army of Israel in David's day exist in order to finish the task, the church of Christ exists to finish the task for Christ. We are here to finish what Jesus began. And both, in both instances, we're left with this question, who is his father? I want, I want to read for you from 1 Samuel 17 as, 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 as David is on his way to battle Goliath. The king asks his attendant, who, whose father? Who's, who, who is his father? Let me read this to you. 1 Samuel 17, 55 to 56. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as sure as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. Now I want to tell you one of the most pressing questions in the life of Jesus when he was with us, and the pressing question for people considering faith in Jesus Christ today still remains, is he indeed the son of God? Is his father God? And we're left with a question in both instances. Who is his father? You see the parallels? Some might say, hey, just coincidence. Just might say, hey, no, I want to tell you, this is a scripture speaking profoundly and clearly and loudly into our lives. It is showing us David and through David what Jesus would come and be and what Jesus would come and do. Most importantly, tying this all together, I think in a very profound way, we hear in the story of David and Goliath that where that army gathered, those armies gathered to do battle, was named Ephesdemim. And you know what that means? It means the place of blood. And I want to tell you, of course, there was a place where Jesus shed his blood so that evil would be defeated and the world would be set free. I want to ask you, what does this mean for us as the people of Christ? What does this mean for us that we see Jesus in the person of David? It's almost like a prophetic statement. David living his life and the story being recounted to us in the way it is so that we can look forward in like 900 years to understand what Christ would do. Pointing to Jesus. Telling us about Christ and his purposes on the earth. Well, number one, I want to tell you this. We are not followers of David. <laughs> we do not exist to emulate David. We're not people who look at biblical stories and say, hey, yay for David. I have to live my life like David in the sense of I want to be a follower of him. I want to tell you we are followers of Jesus Christ, the one whom David represented, the one 
David pointed us toward, we're called to be like Christ, as David was like Jesus even before Jesus was born. Number two, we're called to believe that the battle has been won. And I can't tell you how incredibly important it is for the followers of Christ to know this reality, that evil has been overcome, that evil has been defeated in the person of Jesus through his death and his resurrection, that our enemy is a defeated foe. See, Christ has already overcome, and the power of evil has been broken. And we know the outcome. And although we will struggle and although we will suffer, uh, at the hand of evil on occasion, and you have, and you will, we know we can overcome because we know that we are in the hand of the overcomer. I want to read Romans 8, 34 to 37 for you. And I want you to hear what uh, Paul writes. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Christ sits enthroned in heaven. All-powerful Lord, can anything separate us from Christ's love? Can anything separate you from the love of Jesus? Can anything separate you from the person and the power, the overcoming power of Christ? I've asked all of you in this series, what is your struggle? What is that area where the enemy is taking ground? Where is it, whether it be physical or emotional or, or, or financial or whatever your struggle? And I hope you've identified that. And the question comes to us, in the midst of our struggles, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or, are, are, or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. I love this translation, the New Living Translation, because it describes overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us, for Christ who gave himself for us. You see, whatever our struggle happens to be, the, the, Paul in, in Romans also calls these moments in time, these experiences which we do have, he calls them light and momentary afflictions. And I know people have come to me in the midst of their struggles, and they say, Chris, this doesn't feel like light affliction or even momentary. This is lasting, and this is really, really hard. And, you know, you only have to agree with people who go through some very difficult and challenging times. But Paul says, light and momentary afflictions compared to the glory that will be revealed in us what Paul says is, yeah, we're going to struggle with our enemy. We're going to have difficult and painful times. But those times are nothing compared to the day when Christ returns and we will share in the glory of God. My friends, we are on the winning side. Christ's, Christ has promised that ultimately evil will finally be destroyed in this world. That he will return and we will share in his glory. And that, my friends, carries us through whatever we need to face. So, when we face death, how do we do it? Whether it be the death of a loved one, whether it be our own death someday as we sense it, it nearing. Let me read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 57. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? 
For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God he gives us what? He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, my friends, when we face death, we do so with hope, with the sure and certain hope that Christ has overcome our enemy and that a huge reward awaits us beyond. I want to say number three, lastly, we are called to engage. And I'm going to use a military term here, a mopping up operation, just like the army of Israel in David's day. See, they saw evil defeated, <laughs> just as we have seen evil, evil defeated in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And at that point when Goliath fell, they gave themselves, this army gave themselves to running after the enemy and ridding the land of that enemy. It's one of the most, to me, dramatic parts of this story, which is often so overlooked. Remember, before uh, Goliath's death, he mocked the armies of Israel. As I've said, 40 days he came out and he mocked them. And they would run away in fright, one translation says. They were filled with fear. They didn't engage the battle. They ran from it. It was the Philistine army that stood behind their giant in courage and strength and in confidence. But as soon as Goliath fell, what happened? Everything switched. The armies of the Philistines, recognizing that their, and that their champion had been defeated, their hearts are now filled with fear, and they run away. And what happens to the army of God? Fear dissipates, and courage rises up with them, and they engage the battle as they run after this army to see it uh, driven from their land. It's a remarkable picture, a remarkable story. Let me read it to you. 1 Samuel 17, 51 to 53. David ran and stood over him, now the slain Goliath. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. The men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sharem road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites turned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. See, my friends, I want to tell you that is a picture of the church. That is what we're called to. You know, the story of the Bible is a story, as I've said often and I'll keep saying to you, it's a story of creation, and then it's a story of sin and evil entering into the world. It's called the fall. And then there's the, the next part of the story is the story of redemption, which pointed to the person of Jesus, and ultimately Christ came and redeemed the world through his death and his resurrection. And then there's the story, and we are participating in it now, the story of restoration when God is using his army, the church, to restore everything to what God originally created it to be. You see, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, God comes among us and he moves among us. And we've talked about these things. We are empowered like David was destroyed. No, we are empowered like Jesus was like, As G David was empowered and we are empowered like Christ himself was empowered in order to do the work of God in a mighty and in a powerful way. What are we called to? We are called to point people toward Jesus in faith so that their eyes can be opened to see and understand. Jesus said, I have come into this world in, in, in Luke chapter 4, which we've read, so that the blind might see what they couldn't see before, see and understand and believe in the person of the Lord Jesus. We are called to be empowered to overcome injustice wherever we see it in this world. We are empowered to see brokenness, but wherever brokenness exists to bring healing. 
We are empowered wherever hatred exists to bring love. You see, we are to nullify the influence of evil in this world until Christ comes again and finally and forever destroys evil. And that he has promised to do. Read the latter chapters of Revelation if you wish. It is absolutely clear. Jesus will come again to this world and he will destroy the devil and he will destroy his dark angels. But until that day, we have a job to do. Like the army of, armies of Israel. To, to drive evil from this world, to reclaim this world for God, to throw out the reality of this evil one and his hordes so that the world can be God's again. Now, I want to tell you, this is God's call in the life of our church. If you are part of IPC, this is what God has called us to do. I announced earlier today about another team being prepared and joining together and going to Nicaragua next year. Why do we go to Nicaragua? Why do we go there? Just to be nice people and to help some folks who are in need? I want to tell you, we go to Nicaragua so that people who are blind to the reality of Christ might come to see him, so that, for the most part, children might be blessed with faith, that they might grow up and know the reality of life in Christ. You know, we, we fund in large measure two groups. One is the Nehemiah Center, and the Nehemiah Center takes the funding we give them and it trains pastors, most of whom in Nicaragua are not very well-educated people. And quite frankly, many of them, when they begin, don't know how to pastor a church. And the Nehemiah Center trains them to, in leadership and in biblical studies and how to, how to form a congregation. And we also f uh, fund an organization, and I never say it properly, so David, help me. ASASAN. And they're essentially an organization that trains teachers, not only in the schools we fund, but others, so that these teachers can teach kids of Christ, so that those kids can come to know and believe in Jesus, and their lives will be transformed as a result. You see, we're, we are doing what we do in Nicaragua so that the broken can be healed, so that the blind can see, so that the prisoners can be set free, so that lives can be transformed. Why, why do we run kids' camp? entertainment for our children you know you walk in and you see the way this this room not, never mind the whole building is transformed with incredible decoration and it's just a fantastic time these kids have hundreds of them but it, do we do that just to entertain kids do we do that just so that some parents might have babysitting in the summer when their regular babysitters are off etc well, that might be the case in some of their lives, but that's not the purpose that we do what we do. We do what we do so that we might lead little children to a belief in and knowledge of Jesus so that they can choose the course of their lives and avoid so much that the evil one w would want to, to use to harm their lives and to destroy. No, we want to see kids come to Christ and maybe even some families come to Jesus through them. Why do we do youth ministry and children's ministry? Is it, again, just to occupy the time of our young people and our kids? I want to tell you this. It is an incredibly diff difficult thing today to grow up as a teenager in this culture and follow Jesus faithfully. I see heads nodding. Because so much that the world is teaching our kids today is diametrically opposed to that which the Bible teaches them. It's contrary to the truth of the Word of God. Guess who's behind that? Guess whose strategy that is? And very often our kids are going to high schools and there are very few Christian people who choose to live as they choose to live. 
And we need to form community of, of teenagers and we need to teach them the things of the faith and we need to nurture their faith so that they might grow up and avoid the, the, the plan of the enemy and learn to resist the attack of the enemy, to choose to follow Jesus faithfully and know the incredible blessing that he can bring into their lives. And I could go on with all of our ministries. Why do we do Picnic at the River? And that's a ministry downtown every Tuesday night and uh, there's every other... Thursday, there's an event, and then there are small groups for men and women and so on. Why do we minister to people whose lives are disadvantaged and challenged downtown? Are we just trying to be nice to people? We do, we do picnic at the river so that people's lives can be set free from evil and its power. So that people can come to know and believe in Jesus Christ and have the love of God just invade their lives and, and consume their lives in a way that many of them have never known. You see, my friends, this is why we exist. Let me ask you, why do we do worship on a Sunday morning? Why do we put so much time and energy and focus into what we do right now and what we did 9 o'clock this morning? Two services, not just one. Some people think, well, I get a nice service on a Sunday morning. I get to sing nice songs. I get to hear, on occasion, a decent sermon, you know? I want to tell you, we don't do that just so that you, you know, feel good about yourself and about life and are blessed a little bit. Of course, we want you to be blessed in this. But I want, to, I want to tell you the truth. We gather together on Sunday mornings to enable the army of Jesus Christ to fight the battle well. Why do we have small groups? Why are they so central to, to our vision and to our heart as a congregation? Well, they're like the little platoon where people gather together and they learn to love one another and in the midst of it, they learn to love God and they study scripture and they pray and they support one another in the challenges and the good times in life. But they also get to plan and they get to strategize and then they get to act for the glory of God as they move out into the world in service to take ground back that the enemy has taken from our God. See, my friends, this is the purpose of our church. And I want to tell you, if you're a follower of Jesus, and this might surprise some here today, I don't know, but if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is the purpose of your life. It's not something that is to be peripheral to who we are. It's not something that is, is to be an optional dynamic if we choose to, to, to buy in, in, at least in God's mind. It's not something that we are engage, to engage in in, a, in an occasional way. No, this is why God has saved us because he has a purpose for this world and he has a love not only for us but so many people in this world and he wants to reach into their lives and bless them and open their eyes and bring healing to their brokenness and he wants this society transformed. So whoever we are and wherever we go, we are to be like whom? We are to be like Jesus who came who faced down the enemy, who was empowered by the Spirit of God, and who overcame the enemy through his death and his ultimate resurrection. And you know, sometimes that means we have to die to ourselves that we might live for Christ. That means we have to sacrifice our own well-being even and our own interests and our own desires so that God might come alive in us and use us as a transformative influence in this world. God wants to use you and me to bring the salvation of God to planet Earth. And I very simply want to ask you this morning, have you bought in? Have you bought in? Big part of this story is that we will not be like the army of Israel and its terror and its fright and its inactivity. It did nothing about the Philistine invasion. Nothing. 
It just ran away to where it was safe. <laughs> My friends, the big part of this story is that we might understand that the, that, that the Goliath in our experience, the devil has fallen. He has been overcome. He is a defeated foe so that we can be filled not with fear but with courage and so that we can move from inactivity to a dynamic activity as we drive evil from this world to make it what God intends it to be. You know, I woke up this morning pretty early. I said to someone last night, one of the things I like least about being a minister is I have to get up at 6 o'clock on a Sunday. I don't know why. I've been doing this 26 years, and I just remember the 10 years before when I worked at other things, and I loved Sundays, and I get up at 6 o'clock, and I feel sorry for myself. Not really. I do a little bit, you know, but not really. <laughs> it's not a big deal. But I sit there with my coffee, and, and I take my phone, and I don't know if all, uh, you have some sort of app that gives you a daily Bible verse. I use the U version and would recommend it to you. But today I sat uh, with my coffee and my breakfast, and I read the U version verse of the day, and this is what I read. Uh, Acts 1 verse 8. And again in the New Living Translation, Jesus is speaking. And he's speaking to his people. And let him speak to you today if you're his people. Said, but you will receive power. Stop. He's talking about Pentecost, which is going to happen in chapter 2. He's talking about that time when the Holy Spirit would come in power into the lives of people. And he says, when that happens, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after that, that, that comment, sometime later, the Holy Spirit came in a powerful way. And he filled the lives of God's people. And he transformed their lives. And they became his witnesses. And instead of being fearful people who ran away, they became people of incredible courage and conviction who witnessed to the reality of Jesus in a way that saw thousands of people come to believe in Christ. And the power of evil was broken just a little bit more. And of course, those people became the leaders of the early church, which grew and through the first century became church of million upon million of people estimated to be 22 million by the year 100 AD it was a powerful demonstration of the, of the work of God through his people so here's my second question for, me, for you, has that happened to you? you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you next series that we're going to dig into is it's going to be brief because the summer's coming but it's going to be about the Holy Spirit has it happened to you? Have you had that encounter with God to such a degree that his power fills your being? Not that you are powerful, but like Jesus <laughs> and David, you have become powerful for God so that you fight the fight with not the weapons of the world, not with swords and spears and so on, but with love and with truth and with grace and with mercy and with kindness so that you are used by God in a mighty way to accomplish his, his, pur his purpose. I'm not meaning to make anybody feel badly about themselves, but I am, ask I am asking and I'm calling you to a recognition of the reality of your life. Do you know in your experience what that means? Because I want to tell you, Jesus today wants that as much for you as he wanted it for John and James and Peter and Andrew and all the other disciples who gathered with him in that that room when he spoke those words. Do you hear the message, my friends? 
God wants a church that is powerful for him. Not in any negative and destructive way, but in a way that brings life to this world. He wants a church, our church, our congregation, to be so filled with his Holy Spirit that we become a powerful tool in the hands of God so that people's eyes are open to see and to believe in Jesus the way people, so many people in this world are blind to see. They can't see it. They don't see him. They don't understand. They don't believe. As I've said, God wants the, the influence of evil destroyed, injustice ended, brokenness healed. You know, I could go on and on. I don't want to repeat myself too much. But you know what I'm talking about. And it all boils down to a very simple reality, I would suggest to you. And that is whether we are engaging the dynamics which we have described now over the course of six Sunday mornings, and we are coming to that place in our lives where the Holy Spirit of God has so taken a hold of our hearts and brought us to a place not only of effectiveness for him, but to a place where we deeply desire to be used by God to see the devil and all his followers driven out of the land. A lot of Christian people don't live for that. They live for a lot of other things, but they don't live for that. You know, we sang a song, which I loved earlier this, this morning. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. Somebody help me. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. Fill me with your love and power. You know, let... Oh, I wish I would written it down. I didn't plan to talk about let. Let the... Somebody help me. Come on. Oh, okay, you know what I'm talking about here today. Here's a quest, another question for you. I know they're penetrating questions, and I'm not here to be judgmental and condemning. I'm here to ask you honestly, when you sing the song, All to Jesus I Surrender, I want to know, have you surrendered your life to Christ? Have you said, Jesus, it doesn't matter what I want, and it doesn't matter what my dreams are, and it doesn't matter what my goals are. I am surrendering my life to you that you might use me in power to accomplish your purposes in this world. You want me to really say what I mean? My friends, I want you to understand what this passage, the Word of God, is calling us to. And I want you, as a representative of Christ, as a representative of what He calls us to, I want to call you to full surrender of your life to Jesus, to give up whatever it is that's going on in your life that doesn't honor Him, and to embrace whatever it is He calls you to to engage the battle in whatever way he calls you to engage the battle. I can't define that for you. Nicaragua, if it's that, what he's calling, go to, go to that meeting. If it's youth ministry, go and, and help Brennan and the team impact lives for Jesus. If it's children's ministry, go do that. If it's leading worship, to, if it's, if it's pe picnic by the river, go downtown and help those people who are loving in the name of Jesus and battling very real forces of this world. I don't know what it is. I just know that you're, you're, you have been recruited into the army, and God says, now, let's get busy. Let's, let's give up fear and embrace courage. Let's give up activity and running away, and let's join the, the fray so that the world might be freed of the power of evil. You see, Jesus has come, and we are called to be like Jesus. Jesus has faced the enemy. He has given his life that the world might become what God created the world to be. Are you in? And will you give your life to the cause of Christ? Let's pray.
Lord, we come to the Bible, and so often um, it is just powerful when we understand it and bring application to our own lives. God, as a congregation, we have heard loudly and clearly that we exist, as Jesus said, to to get out into that world so that the gates of hell will not prevail against us, so that we would move forward in power and the gates which, of hell which have been established would crumble in the advance of the church of Jesus. And we pray that you would enable us as we go forward to be that kind of church. God, I pray for every single person here who claims the name of Jesus. Help them to know why they are yours. God, I pray that you would enable them to see clearly how they are recruited, not just to a life with you, but to a life of doing battle with our enemy and to ex experiencing victory after victory after victory as you empower us to go forward in your name to see evil's influence diminished in this world until the day which you return and destroy it forever. God, make us a mighty force in your hand. Fill us, God, with your Holy Spirit, we pray. I pray for every person here, Lord, who is yours. Fill them with your Holy Spirit that they might surrender everything in their lives to you, holding nothing back. Lord, whatever you want, I will do. Wherever you want me to go, I will go. Yield it fully to the person of Jesus. God, form this in us, we pray. Do your work in us, we pray. Use us powerfully, we pray, that the kingdom of God might come in power, that we might finish the task that you have begun until the day that you return. And this we pray in the name of Jesus.